Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. So for the last couple months, we've been in this series called Image of the Invisible, where we're digging into the book of Colossians and talking about how the grace and the greatness of Jesus transforms everything in our world. Because this radical truth that the creator stepped into creation to redeem and reconcile a lost humanity to himself, and that he did that not by asking us to perform or to earn his love, but instead by giving us grace at the beginning, grace at the end and all grace in the middle, that's revolutionary good news. And when we understand it, it shifts our identity. And for the last couple of weeks, Josh and Jeff talked about what it means to embrace the identity God is trying to hand us. And this morning, what I want to do is zoom in on two verses at the end of Colossians 3 that I think have a clear and compelling ability to help us live into the fullness of our created purpose and our God-given identity in one of the most significant areas of our lives, our work. I think sometimes we don't connect what we do on Sunday mornings to what we do 40 hours a week out there in the world. And it's hard to see the tie-in between our nine to five and our Sunday morning worship services. And sometimes that gets exacerbated by the church because the only practical workaday applications we ever get for how to live as a Christian in the workplace is like, Share Jesus with your friends and invite them to church. And not that those aren't good things to do. There are Easter invites on your chair. Please use those. Please invite people to church. And please point out when you send out or mail out or hand out the Easter invites that our services are not at 8, 9.30, and 10, because everyone's going to come to 9.30 because it's short. That's a, that's a typo. It's 8, 9.30, and 11. But in fairness to us on the typo, if you look one inch right, it says we don't pretend to be perfect or like we have everything figured out at Revision. And I think, you know, that disclaimer is there and it shows it's not faux humility. It's just an accurate picture of who we are. But use that and invite people. But what I want you to understand this morning, you guys, is that when you step into the identity Jesus is trying to give you, it means your work, like the work itself is holy. Your work is worship. Your work is worship, or at least it can be. And your work can be worship because that's what God created work to be. Because he made you, dreamed you up and breathed life into your nostrils to hand you the created creative purpose of bringing glory to him and adding value to people. Let's be straight. I think though, for a lot of us, as we think about work and worship, the only real connection we've ever made between those two things in our brain is that they both start with with W. And they do. If you made that connection, you're an English wizard. You might be smarter than a fifth grader, but there's more to it than that. And if we're going to live the lives God desperately wants us to live, we got to understand this. We got to understand who it is he made us to be and how it is he made us to work because we live in the middle of a culture 
that will absolutely tell us our identity and our security are completely wrapped up in our vocation. And maybe for some of you being identified by your job is like a fun thing in social situations. For me, not, not that fun. It usually just makes things real awkward. Like I think if you tell people, hey, I'm a teacher or I'm a stay-at-home mom or I'm an engineer, they say, oh, wow. If you tell them I'm a pastor, they get weird real quick. They're like, I made it to church on Easter and I'm trying to say less swears and stuff. It's just so bad. A couple years ago, I was in Minnesota. I was officiating a buddy's wedding and I was sitting at a table and behind me was this girl who I think was a friend of the bride and she was explaining how she had a terrible flight in because it was just like so uncomfortable. She got stuck sitting next to a pastor and eh. And then I met her and I didn't talk about what I do. And then my friend, it was time for this little mini rehearsal and he looked at me and he said, hey, pastor, Mike, take it away. And she turned to me with sheer horror on her face and said, you're not really a pastor. Like, I don't even know what that means. I don't look like one or smell like, look what, I had to break the bad news. I am, that's my whole life. As if existing like this, with this whole bald beard resting angry face isn't off-putting enough. Then I got to tell people what I do for a living. And it's a good reminder though, every time it happens to me, that we tend to put people in a box based on the job they have. It's kind of our default mode. We all do it. And we also tend to see ourselves in that same box. And this is where it gets dangerous because when we let what we do become who we are, we slide very easily into this space where work turns into an idol in our lives, where we start to worship our work rather than using our work as a tool to worship. And they're overwhelming. Statistical evidence suggests that a lot of us here this morning are in that space. Work is an idol. And we have a weird association with the word idol. When we hear it, we tend to think of like little statues that people bow down and worship. We're like, I don't think I'm bowing down to my work. But biblically speaking, idols aren't always bad things in and of themselves. Often they're good things that we've made too important. They're good things and blessings in our lives that we've elevated to the place of God and allowed to be the source of our identity and our security. And we do that with work all the time. We decide that what I'm doing now or or the job that I'm studying to do now is my primary source of identity in the present and security for the future because of the income that it provides me. But God actually paints a totally different picture for us He tells us a different story. He says our identity is found in being his children, created in his image, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and our security is found in him because he loves us and he provides. I think if you guys are anything like me, it's easy sometimes to get that intellectually and to pay lip service to it while secretly, deep down, kind of still believing in the message of the world that my identity is in my vocation and my security is in my bank account. And I know I'm not alone with that, with that, but when we do that, we're left with a really deficient picture of who we really are and who really sustains us. And we're also left with this lingering disconnect between our faith and our work, between work and worship. And that's disastrous because it keeps us from stepping into the story God's trying to write. It prevents us from understanding the identity he's trying to hand us And it cuts us off 
from experiencing the peace and joy that are found not only in working the way that he created us to work, but in resting in the idea that he loves us enough to always provide. And so we get this distorted identity that's somehow built around work, which is sitting on the throne of our lives. And we give it more weight than it ought to have. You know, the word for worship in the Bible has the same root word as the word for weight. And so anything becomes an idol in our lives when we give it more weight than it should have. And the problem with allowing work to become our primary source of identity, our primary source of security, the problem with putting it on the throne of our lives and letting it be an idol is it can't carry the weight. Ultimately, if we worship our work, whether we like what we're doing or hate what we're doing, if it's an idol, if it's who we are, it'll crush us because it can't carry the weight, but it's easy to do. I mean, no matter what it is you do, whether you're a student, stay-at-home mom, CEO, or anything in between, it's easy to do because we live in the middle of a culture of work worshipers. And if that's you, God has something to say to you. It's simple, but revolutionary. Stop worshiping work and start seeing work as an opportunity to worship. Because that's what it is. That's why God handed us work. He created work to give us purpose and meaning, to allow us to be a part and play a role in what he's doing to set all things right and make all things new. He handed us work as a chance to show the world what we believe about who he is, while also blessing people and making their lives better. That's what it's all about. And if you have a Bible with you, you can crack it open to the book of Colossians because this is what Paul's trying to tell us at the end of chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the words on the screen. If you need one or your kids do, they're free at the next steps table. Please take it. We love it when they disappear. But this is what Paul writes at the very end of Colossians three in verses 23 and 24. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I love this so much because it's not you you're serving at your job. It's not your boss or your company you're serving at your job. It's Jesus. Work and worship are deeply connected. This word that I was talking about, that's the same root for work and worship is the Hebrew word avodah. Can everybody say avodah with me? Avodah. Avodah literally means weight or heavy or bending because we bend to worship and we bend to work and we bend to serve. And so it's used all over the Bible to describe these different concepts and demonstrate the connection between them. It's the word in Exodus 34, 21, which says six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Exodus 8, 1 says, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so they may worship me. And we see it again in Joshua 24, 15, when Joshua says, choose for yourselves to stay whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Working and worshiping are intimately interwoven. And today, as we continue to talk about who we are, about the difference Jesus makes in our lives, what I wanna do is give you a bigger, better picture of who you were made to be in the area of your work. And my prayer is that we can walk out and go do whatever it is we do 40 or 50 hours a week with a renewed sense of purpose and meaning and joy in that because we know it doesn't define us. It just provides us with an opportunity to bring glory to God and add value to people. 
And before we jump into that, I, I want to talk real briefly about what worship is, because I think worship is one of those churchy words that we hear in church. And if you grew up in church, maybe you have a concept of it. But if you didn't, it's kind of a weird concept to pin down. And even, even if you are, you know, a churchy person, so often we only hear worship used in the context of like a worship service is a thing we go to and worship songs are things we sing. And so the natural conclusion is worship is something we go to or sing. But it's so much more than that. Worship is an entire lifestyle. It's dedicating your life to the thing you value most. It's living in the direction of the thing you've decided is most important. Worship is living for the thing that's most important to us. That's worship. So what's work? If you've been around revision for any length of time, you've probably heard me say this before, but my working definition of work is effort that creates value. I think what Paul's trying to help us see here at the end of Colossians 3 is that ultimately when we've been reconciled to right relationship with God and people through Jesus, we are invited to be a part of God's movement in the world. And part of that is working in a way that points people towards his greatness and grace and makes their lives better and more beautiful. Here's when we recognize work as an opportunity to worship, the first thing that happens is we live out our created purpose. In Genesis 2.15, we see the first usage of this avodah word in the Bible. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And this is a description of God's original plan. It's his design for Adam that Adam would, would work the garden. Notice Adam hadn't sinned yet, which means God didn't make Adam do work with his hands as a punishment for sinning or as a, as a consequence for messing things up. That was part of his design because Adam was created in the image of God and God works. And so he handed in the garden to work, not like a park ranger so he could keep it safe, but as a gardener so he could cultivate it and make something more out of it than what was there before. I think sometimes we, we look back at the garden and we have this idea that it was complete, that it was, it was perfect and it was just done before sin came in and messed everything up. But that's not quite what the Bible says. I mean, sin did mess everything up. Look around you, read Twitter. There is disaster after disaster after disaster out there in our shattered world. But it's interesting to look at what God actually said about his creation when he handed it to Adam before sin entered the world. Instead of calling it complete as though it couldn't be improved upon, he called it good as though it could be cultivated to be even better. The raw materials were there. It's kind of like this. When Jenny and I were engaged, at one point, she went down to her neighbor's house who was going to do her hair for our wedding for what in my mind was like a rough draft of the hairdo. And then she came back to her parents' house and she said, what do you think? And I said, it kind of looks like Edward Norton's hair from Keeping the Faith. <laughs> two things, two things. One, Apparently, it wasn't as much of a rough draft as I thought. It was more of a practice run on the hairdo she was going for. Two, brides did not like being compared to Edward Norton. Who could have seen that coming? Anyways, fast forward a month or two. At our wedding day, when we did the first look, the words Edward Norton did not flash through my mind at all. All I could think is, that's the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my life. And I know that's like super sappy. And some of you are like, oh, and others of you are like, eh. But whatever, it's true. This is just a true story, all right? That's all I could think. And my point in telling that is to say this. I don't think the Edward Norton debacle is entirely my fault. 
Hear me out. Hear me out, okay? Clearly, the raw materials were there to make something breathtaking. Janet just failed at the practice run. I can't even say it with a straight face. Janet, if you ever watched this, it was a joke. It was a joke. But raw materials, that is what I'm getting at. Raw materials, we were created with the creative purpose of cultivating raw materials and making something beautiful out of them. And the crazy thing is when we do that, when contractors take raw materials and they make skyscrapers, when artists take raw materials and they make music, when lawyers take raw materials and make laws, when students take raw materials and make concepts, when Moms take like screaming, poopy little raw materials and make functional humans out of them. God is creating the future with and through us. God's using us to add value to the lives of the people we crash into. The theologian Martin Luther once took Psalm uh, 17 or Psalm 147, 13 and 14 that says, he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. And Luther took it and he asked, well, how does God do that? How does God strengthen the bars of our gates? How does he satisfy us with wheat? How does he bless our children? Well, he does it through blacksmiths and construction workers and farmers and millers and teachers? How does he secure our borders through police officers and soldiers? He does it through other people. And Luther went on to argue that no matter what it is we're doing, as long as we're adding value to the people around us, our vocations are masks for the face of God. That God changes the world and creates the future through us. And it's easy for us to look out and just see ordinary It's easy for us to look in the mirror and just see ordinary. We see an ordinary mom and an ordinary engineer, an ordinary student, an ordinary middle manager, but behind that ordinary is a God who is working through our working to make the world better. Like when we see work as an opportunity to worship, we live out our created purpose. And sometimes it's not that fun. Because of sin, the world really is all sorts of messed up. And, and work is an awful, frustrating experience sometimes. And the reality is not all of us sitting in here today are doing what we wish we were doing. We're, we're not necessarily working in something that we would call our passion area, that we think is our purpose. And that's incredibly hard in the middle of a culture that is bought in hook, line, and sinker, that whatever we do vocationally ought to line up exactly with our passions and that someone out there in the world owes us an exorbitant salary for chasing our passions. That's just not how the world works. That's not how the world has ever worked. That's not how following Jesus has ever worked. In the first century, like in the early church, a massive percentage of the Christ followers the ones who built this whole movement that spread across the globe today were slaves. They certainly weren't doing what they thought was their purpose. And yet, when we see work as worship, we can do it with all our hearts and we can do good work anyway because our identity is not caught up in our vocation. Like not doing what we want to be doing is not a death sentence for us because we are defined by who Jesus is and what he did for us. So we can just do good work. And that's the third thing that happens when we begin to see work as an opportunity to worship. We do things with excellence. You guys, God cares a whole lot about 
the parts of your life that exist outside of what you're doing at church in any given week. And the good news about that, or, or the bad news, depending on how you feel about your job, is the fact that God put you where he put you, the fact that God can work through you no matter what work you're doing, means it's really difficult to go put in a half effort tomorrow, right? Like, whatever it is you're going to go do for the rest of this week, if everything you do is a reflection of who you are and who he is, if it's a picture of what you're all about in this universe, then it's really awkward to do a bad job and not try very hard. That option just ain't on the table anymore, right? And I realize that that's a difficult thing to wrap our minds around, especially if you hate your boss. Like if your boss is just stinks, it's just the worst, don't raise your hand, don't do it. I just like, that's probably a lot of people in here, but for two reasons, I don't want you to do it. Number one, if your boss is here and sitting behind you, I don't want you to get fired. And number two, I don't want it to inspire Jeremy or Courtney or Alyssa or Jeff to be like, mine too. I don't want to hear it from them today. But listen, even if your boss is the worst, you can do good work because you're not working for your boss. That's what Paul's getting at in Colossians 3, 23 and 24 when he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. It's Jesus that you're serving like when we begin to see that work is an opportunity to glorify God and add value to people, then we begin to work for an audience of one. And that changes the game completely in the moments where we are overlooked and underappreciated. Because when, not if, when, at school or at your job, you do things and you don't get the recognition that you deserve. You don't get the gratitude that you deserve. You don't get the promotion that you deserve. When no one seems to be noticing how hard you're working and how much you're contributing, and that happens. That happens in the classroom and in the boardroom, on the job site and in your home. Sometimes all of us will be overlooked and underappreciated, but when that happens, we can still do it with joy even if only God sees, because we know God sees. C.S. Lewis once observed that there are valleys on this planet completely unseen by human eyes that are still filled with beautiful flowers. And he asked the question, why? Because God creates and God sees things for his pleasure. We are working for an audience of one so we can do things with excellence because God sees and he takes pleasure in it. And even if no one notices, we are creating value for the people around us. We're making the world a better, more beautiful place for them. That's actually the fourth thing that happens when we, or the third thing that happens when we see work as worship. We bless the people around us. In fact, when we begin looking at work as an opportunity to live out our identity in Christ, an opportunity to worship, other people occupy a dramatically different space in our motivational grid. Because when work's an idol, when work is my sense of identity, when work is my sense of security, then everybody around me is just a tool to be used for my own advancement. They're, they're something, not somebody, but something I can leverage to get ahead and get what I want and get more for myself. But when I understand that that's not really what I'm doing here. When I understand who it is Jesus said he made me to be and how it is Jesus said he made me to work, then everything shifts and other people become the reason that I work. I've always been challenged by 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. 
Paul's writing about Jesus and what he did for us. And he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He's asking us to see the world through an entirely different lens. And I think when it comes to our work, he's asking us to, to think about the question. Like if I owe Jesus a debt that I could never repay, if I'm in the red when it comes to Jesus and he did it for me anyway, how should I treat all the people around me who can do nothing for me? All the people in my job who can't help me get ahead. All the people in my world who can't repay anything I give to them. You say, well, if Jesus actually did for us what Jesus did for us, then we need to work hard and we need to help out and we need to give more, more of our time, more of our money and more of our effort, even to those who can never repay us because that's what we're all about in the world and that's what Jesus did for us. It sounds crazy. It's wildly countercultural in 21st century America, but we can do it. We can because the bottom line has completely changed, right? The game shifted. The game is no longer personal profit. The game is human flourishing. And when that's the game, we can live and we can work and we can serve other people even when we get nothing out of it. Because our security and our identity are are no longer found in our vocation. They're not found in the size of our salary or the size of our savings. They're found in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And when we get that, when we understand our identity in him, it transforms the way we see the universe. It allows us to get up on a Monday morning and get dressed with a whole new sense of joy and a whole new sense of purpose for the week ahead. Like we were invented and now we're being invited to be a blessing to everyone we crash into. And no matter what it is you do, you can accept that invitation this week. You can add value to people and live in a way that points them toward God. And that's actually the, the fourth thing that happens when we see work through the lens of our identity in Jesus. We point people toward Jesus. I'm not talking about doing that in some sort of like belligerent, you know, angry way. Like, ah, I don't care about corporate policy. Happy holidays, happy schmolidays. I'm putting up a Merry Christmas sign anyway. That'll point people to Jesus. Like, ah, maybe. I doubt it. Well, like, also, I'm not talking about forced, awkward lunch conversations. Like you stroll into the cafeteria and like, hey, Bill, see you reading a book there. And uh, speaking of books, is your name in the book of life? Where are you going to go when you die, Bill? God, I think all of us should be having spiritual conversations. Don't get me wrong. And if people are open, chase it. But if they're not open, maybe don't kick down that door. Just trust the Holy Spirit's going to do his thing. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I think what Paul means in Colossians 3 is that when we embrace the idea that we're working for Jesus, the way we work actually points people toward him. Like the the radical difference in our effort, in our love, in our compassion, in our humility, in our excellence, causes people to sit back and say, what is going on? Why are are you different than everybody else here? Why would you you grind so hard for a boss you know is going to take all the credit when things go right and throw you under the bus as soon as things go wrong? Why are you doing that? Why do you have joy even when things are, are difficult here? Why do you give so much of your time away? Why do you give so much of your money away? Why? Like when we understand our identity in Christ, we earn the right to be asked those questions and you're gonna be asked them. So be, be ready. You know, Peter warns us that we should always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason we have hope. Just always be ready and do it with do it with gentleness and respect. And 
I know sometimes, at least this is true for me, and it's probably true for some of you as well, sometimes we do get asked, and then we freak out because we weren't ready to be asked the question. We were like, oh man, if I talk about faith, I'm going to like weird them out. And so we just like go with some like fake humility. We're like, I don't know why I am this way. But I think that's so much more awful and less humble for two reasons. Hear me out. One, we owe God a bigger debt of gratitude. We know that part. But two, when someone asks you why you are the way you are and you don't mention Jesus, basically what you're saying to them, and instead of saying like, you know what? I don't have it all together. Thanks for asking why I am the way that I am, but it's, it's just Jesus. I'm a work in progress. Every day I'm trying to be more like him and the Holy Spirit is helping me. We're like, oh man, that might, that might be offensive to them. And so instead we say, I don't know. It's how I am. I must be better than you. Really? That's so much worse. Don't do that. Like when people ask us why we are the way we are and we can tell them I am the way that I am because he is who he is and he did what he did for me. It's an incredible opportunity to point them toward the love that they're desperate for. As we live in a culture of work worshipers, it's so easy in the middle of this society to worship work, to put our jobs on a pedestal on the throne of our lives and live as though our vocation is our primary source of identity and security. And even if you don't have a job right now and you're looking for one, it's easy to define yourself by the job you don't yet have. But don't let work become your identity. Don't let work become your security. Because when you do, it's gonna become an idol and you're gonna worship it and then it will crush you. Again, whether you like it or don't like it, it will crush you because it's, too weak to bear the weight of your worship. And the reality is you're gonna worship something. There will be something in this world to which you ascribe the greatest value. And for what it's worth, I think, just my two cents, work is terrible at being God. But shockingly enough, God is super good at it. Five-star Google review. So maybe, maybe do that instead. Maybe do that instead. And I, I, I think if we do, like if we don't get caught up in this cultural thing where, where work is, is everything and we start to put work in its proper place, instead of worshiping our work, we use our work as a tool for worship, then we're able to find meaning and hope and joy and purpose. And a thing that for, for so many people around us, for so many of our coworkers is a, a frustrating soul-sucking drain. I, just, I want that for us. I want that for every single one of us. I think like at the end of our lives, all of us will look back and wish that we had given everything we had to Jesus. We will, I guarantee it. But I love it that, that part of that, part of giving everything we have to Jesus means doing great work at whatever work is in front of us because we know who we are and whose we are. And we know that he is working through our working to add value to people and draw the world toward his love. And that's worth going to do 40, 50 hours Monday through Friday, right? Will you just pray with me? Oh, thank you. Thank you for the fact that we get to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Thank you for every single person in this room who's going out and adding value to people and creating beauty in the world. Lord, may we walk out of here knowing that. Would you just thunder it in our souls so that we don't walk into the workplace, walk into our schools, walk into our offices tomorrow and feel crushed by the weight of it any longer? Would you give us this deep sense of purpose? Would you help us see 
whose we are and who we are so that you can continue working through us to make a difference. And I just thank you for everyone in this room. Thank you for what they're doing to add value to people and point them toward your love and your glory. And I pray for all of us that would embrace that idea this week in a way that, that really does make the world better and more beautiful for everyone we crash into. And I thank you, Jesus, for inviting us to be a part of what you're doing in the world to set all things right and make all things new. Thank you for that purpose. Amen.